Good afternoon again, uh, and I apologize for the delay. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute. And let me say at the outset that this forum was organized by my colleague, Mark Calabria, who is the director of financial regulatory studies at the Cato Institute. But I'm, uh, he couldn't be here today, so I'm pleased to, to take uh, his role as moderator. Much of the world is recovering uh, from the global financial crisis. Uh, indeed, uh, some countries were not as severely hit as others. India and China, for example, had uh, seen a slowdown in their rate of growth, but have now uh, seen higher uh, growth rates. And indeed, they had high growth rates even during the worst of, of times. The record in other major world economies is more mixed, however. The U.S. is recovering, but that has been slow, and it looks to be a jobless recovery. A range of European countries have been badly hit, largely as a result of self-inflicted uh, wounds, and are suffering from or contributing to the Eurozone uh, crisis, a crisis uh, that is by no means at an end and in which European authorities have yet to convince markets about the seriousness of their responses. A further deterioration uh, in Europe would have consequences worldwide, and we cannot rule out a double-dip recession. Meanwhile, financial regulation is making its way through the U.S. Congress, intended precisely to avoid a repeat of past mistakes. But do the measures being considered in the United States and elsewhere uh, actually address the main problems that caused the global financial crisis in the first place? Is moral hazard uh, more likely to increase or decrease in the future? Are global patterns of credit and consumption likely to change much, and what, if anything, is being done about that? When will government-sponsored agencies like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, be reformed, if at all? Uh, these, of course, were at the center of the subprime crisis in the United States. Are these the right questions to be asking? To get good answers, it is best to understand uh, the underlying problems in the world economy uh, that led to the, to the crisis, and that's why I'm pleased to have with us today a leading authority on the subject who has more credibility than most uh, on this itch issue, as he was one of the few who actually predicted uh, the global financial crisis. Indeed, in the, in the now celebrated uh, paper in 2005 that he presented at the Jackson Hole uh, Conference, Raghuram Rajan pointed out that financial firms were taking on uh, an extreme level of risk, including through such instruments as credit default swaps that could create a systemic crisis in the banking system. That paper was not well received at the time, especially at an event that was otherwise intended to be a sort of a, a celebration of the, the legacy of the Greenspan Fed. But it was a prescient uh, paper. Now uh, Dr. Rajan has published a book in which he describes the fault lines, and indeed that is the, the title of his book, uh, or the threats uh, to the world economy uh, that led to the Great Recession and that still exist. We had better listen to his analysis this time around. Dr. Rajan is a professor at the School of Business, at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. From 2003 to January of 2007, he was the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Dr. Rajan also serves as an economic advisor to the Prime Minister of India and has chaired the Indian government's Committee on Financial Sector Reform. 
he received in 2003 from the American Finance Association the Fisher Black Prize, which is given every two years to the financial economist under the age of 40 who has made the most significant contribution uh, to the theory and practice of finance. Significantly, he is also the co-author with Luigi Zingales of a splendid book, Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists. Please help me wel welcome Dr. Rajan. Thanks very much uh, for having me here, and uh, uh, thanks to all of you for coming. Um, so um, we've had a first series of books about the crisis. Uh, the Fly on the Wall accounts uh, is as Jamie Diamond was driving his car into the restaurant, he was thinking about, uh, we've had that kind of uh, analysis, and it's been very good. It's told us what happened. Uh, then we have a, had a second wave, which looked at the proximate causes of the crisis, what the bankers did, uh, what kinds of uh, actions they took, and so on. And, and now I think it's time for a third wave of, of books on the crisis, which sort of take a step back and ask, uh, what were the deeper forces going on? And uh, one of my discussants at this uh, panel, Carmen Reinhardt, has an excellent book uh, on the public debt problem uh, and more generally financial crises over the last, uh, uh, over the last 800 years. Uh, this is an attempt to focus on this crisis and to explain um, you know, what the differences in this crisis were, uh, why this crisis was not just uh, like all the other crises, uh, but differed in some important details. There were many similarities, of course. And uh, let me start, uh, oh God, uh, Carmen, this is exactly what you said would happen. <laughs> Um, uh, I think what we have is a PowerPoint problem, which is this is, uh, this is a different version of PowerPoint from the one that we... Um, okay, let, let me just walk through this, and, and uh, you can... Uh, uh, you can um, uh, um, there is an easy explanation for this crisis. It was uh, a bunch of greedy bankers uh, with serious conflicts of interest, uh, as a banker friend of mine says, when there's no conflict, there's no interest. Uh, and, um, you know, this, this was uh, a problem in the banking sector, and surrounding the banking sector were pliant regulators without any spine who didn't uh, interpose uh, when the banking se sector took risks. And together, they took the system over the cliff. And to some extent, this was, uh, uh, you know, the subtext of my 2005 speech, but uh, having done a lot of thinking since then, I think that uh, there were deeper forces also at work, which I'd like to talk about. And the hint that there are deeper forces at work come from, uh, from two aspects. Uh, one, um, you know, if we think about this crisis, it happened in the most sophisticated financial system in the world. And one of the reasons the regulators were complacent was because financial crises in industrial countries had been few and far between typically happened in countries like Japan, which didn't have as sophisticated a financial sector as the United States. So one, why did this happen in the most sophisticated system in the world, a system which typically would have had checks and balances? Um, the second question is, um, if in fact this was about greedy bankers, why did it happen at the bottom end of the spectrum. Typically, when you look at housing booms, and uh, some people at Stanford have done studies of housing booms, much of, it, of the action is at the top. 
the richest uh, people's houses goes up the most, and they also fall the most in the, uh, in the bust. This time around, it was at the bottom, uh, the poor and uh, uh, lower middle class uh, housing, which went up the most and fell the most. So why did bankers suddenly get it into their uh, hearts and heads to lend uh, to the poorer segments of society? What happened? So I, I think these questions suggest that maybe there is something uh, a little different about this particular crisis centered as it was on subprime. And I think it, it, it's important that we get the answers right. Uh, because uh, if the answer is it was a few greedy bankers, uh, which is sort of the populist explanation, well, take them out and shoot a few at dawn and set an example for the rest. I mean, in fact, this is to some extent what Congress is doing by uh, hauling them over the coals with various congressional committees, but also undoubtedly the various investigations underway will un uncover some wrongdoing, and there will be a few bankers who will be sent away for some time. Um, this is in many ways what happened in the 30s when Congress intervened and uh, the Pecora Committee hearings, uh, which are very famous, uh, hauled the bankers over the coals in the same way as some of the congressional committees are doing now. Um, similarly, if the regulators are spineless, let's add more regulation. Um, you know, the current bill, uh, I think, has some lines which basically says, say, don't make a loan until you expect it to be paid back. Uh, that seems to me... If we're at the point where we need to regulate in that way, uh, we're beyond redemption. Uh, but, but it seems to me that uh, that, uh, that seems to be the fix. Let's, let's deal with these problems through more regulation, no matter that the past regulations weren't well enforced, and let's, uh, let's, uh, let's haul the bankers over the coals. Uh, they'll become more self-respecting, solid citizens, and they won't do the things that they did. But what if the problems were deeper? and we're tackling the wrong issues. And this is where I want to go with this book. Uh, my explanation is that there were serious fault lines in the United States and the world economy. And these fault lines surrounded the financial sector, uh, created the underlying fragilities and the incentives. So this is not a attempt to hold the bankers innocent or victims, but to argue that they responded to the implicit and explicit incentives. Incentives were the focus in my uh, 2005 speech, but I want to argue where these things came from. And I want to say that unless we fix the deeper problems, we're back to what happened in a different way. It won't be subprime this time. It will be a different way. It may be a public debt crisis, as Carmen has uh, argued. It may be something else, but we need to fix the underlying problems. So what are these fault lines? Let me jump quickly to them. Uh, surprising as it may seem, I put a lot of emphasis on growing inequality in the United States. Uh, there is a lot of dispute about how much is real and how much is perception. Doesn't matter for my case, perception is all I need. If you look at the uh, incomes of people at the 90th percentile of the wage distribution, these are typically your manager in a Walmart. Uh, that's running away from people at the 50th percentile of the wage distribution, typically a factory worker. Uh, by contrast, so that's the dark line showing the differential in, uh, in wage growth. The lighter line is a differential between the person at the 50th percentile and the person at the 10th percentile. That hasn't been moving much. The person at the 50th percentile is probably, uh, again, uh, a factory worker. At the 10th percentile, maybe an agricultural worker. That difference is not moving much. So why is it that people at the 90th percentile are moving away? And remember, these are people 
who typically have incomes below most of the people in this room, uh, that's, that inequality has also been increasing, typically not the focus of newspaper uh, uh, articles, which typically rail about the top 0.01%. This 90-50 differential, in many ways, has been increasing because uh, technology requires far more sophisticated skills uh, to undertake the jobs that are being produced by the modern economy, right? So it used to be, in the turn of the uh, 19th to 20th century, uh, factory workers needed a high school degree. Today, office workers need a college education to do the kinds of jobs that are available. So the demand for skills has increased. Now, it has been increasing at a steady pace because uh, before the advent of factory jobs, you didn't even need a high school degree to do the jobs, agricultural jobs that were available. But the difference in the United States has not been the pace of technological change. Uh, as uh, innovative as the Internet has been, um, in the 1910s and 20s, it was the automobile. It was, uh, uh, you know, it was um, uh, transportation. It was uh, tremendous changes occurred then also. But the United States responded better at that point in creating the supply of the educated. What's been falling behind in the United States in recent years is that the supply of the educated hasn't kept pace with the demand. So even as there's a need for more people with high school degrees, there are some really alarming facts on the ground. The number of high school graduates uh, as a fraction of, uh, of the population in each cohort hasn't increased over the last 30 years. It's been stagnant. It's been compensated somewhat by graduate equivalency diplomas. These are things that people go back to do after they leave high school halfway. But uh, my colleague Jim Heckman tells me that these aren't worth the paper they're written on. So um, stagnant high school graduation rates. College graduation rates have been improving for women. But for men, the cohort born in the 1970s has no higher a graduation rate than co the cohort born in the 1940s. This is alarming. Even as the premium for uh, college jobs is increasing, the number of college educated is not keeping pace. And the reasons for this are, uh, you know, uh, range from uh, inadequate uh, family support, uh, broken communities, uh, terrible preschool preparation, including nutrition and uh, medical services, and, of course, the fact that our K-12 schooling system has deep deficiencies, especially when catering to those who are not well off. So put all these together, we have a deep problem. And this problem has been mounting over the last 30 years. It's what is uh, often called the stagnant median wage debate. Well, people who are falling behind uh, will push on their politicians to do something. So regardless of whether this is fact or perception, there will be pressure, and there has been pressure, on politicians to do something. But it's very hard to tackle the deep roots of this problem. How do you fix communities? How do you fix families? How do you fix schools to make the education experience better? There are many experiments underway, but I can't say that we've really been successful. We still are falling behind as a country. So the next best alternative in many developing countries is redistribution. If people are falling behind and they're pressing and they vote, well, give them more money by taxing the rich and giving it to the, uh, the less well-off. Well, in the United States, there's been very strong opposition to redistribution over the last 20, 20 25 years. I don't need to go into the details of why that is the case. Part of the reason uh, for that, uh, just throwing out a thought, maybe that the rich 
are increasingly the working rich rather than the quote-unquote idle rich, and that may increase the, uh, the tensions. But nevertheless, the bottom line is redistribution has not been politically uh, uh, supported. And in that situation, what are politicians to do when people want action? Well, I argue in the book that housing and housing credit were the political solution to stagnant wages. So if you give credit to people to buy houses, and they buy those houses, one, they have a stake in the future, which is a good thing. You don't want these people to uh, drop out of society. Two, if the house price increases, um, you can borrow against it, and you can consume more. And so what people fundamentally care about is consumption and wealth. Your wealth is increasing, your consumption is increasing. You pay much less attention to your stagnant paycheck. So in many ways, the first chapter I, uh, uh, in this book is called Let Them Eat Credit. Uh, I see credit as a solution to a deep underlying problem of stagnant, stagnant wages. And it had bipartisan support. From the left, there was a sense that this was money going to their favored constituencies. That was a good thing. Um, President Clinton called this affordable housing mandate, pushed very hard on it through the various institutions of the government. President Bush called it the ownership society and again pushed very hard on those same institutions of government to expand home ownership. And home ownership did expand, uh, went up to about 68% in 2004, but since then has been on a steady decline. It's probably going to fall much further because of foreclosures. The point I'm trying to argue is rising inequality and the political pressure to do something about it uh, created bipartisan support for housing as the answer. Uh, and uh, for the left, more money to their constituencies. For the right, creating more property owners would eventually vote in their favor, uh, but was a short-term solution whose consequences we are now paying uh, because it didn't work. Um, that's not the only fault line I want to talk about. A second fault line lies outside the United States. Uh, countries have grown by focusing on exports. Japan, uh, over the 20 years, over the 20, uh, 23 years between 1950 and 1973, was one of the fastest growers in the world economy, 8% per year per capita. What was the magic that they had found? Well, it was a few things. One, they created strong industries through a support from the government and through the banking system. Now, typically, that's a recipe for disaster. Because if you're cartelizing industry, it becomes inefficient and doesn't actually grow. The difference was they told them to go out and export. They pushed industry to export and so forced these, country, these industries to be competitive in the world market. And they succeeded. Um, I think if you think about Japanese manufacturers, the names roll off your lips. Toyota, Fujitsu, Honda, all extremely efficient firms. And what the focus on exports did was all to dealt with another problem. When you're poor, you have a small domestic market. So it's not enough to absorb your exports, uh, absorb your manufacturing. The foreign uh, export market is big enough. So it solved a lot of problems at the same time. It worked. However, let me ask you the following. Name a Japanese restaurant chain. Anybody? Benihana. One. Second guesses, this was my guess also. Any others? I mean, if you ask for an American restaurant chain, you can reel them off, right? Uh, uh, name uh, 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 a Japanese consulting firm. Nope. That's the point. 
extremely efficient manufacturing sector. But when you start thinking about sectors that were more domestic-oriented, that would provide services domestically, um, not the same level of efficiency. Um, in fact, uh, one uh, of the problems is that on the external side, they had foreign competition, which would keep them honest. But the same cartels that formed domestically did not allow competition. And as a result, inefficiencies built up. Um, example of haircuts in Japan. Haircuts are very expensive in Japan. So obviously, people have fewer haircuts than, uh, than they should. Uh, one might think that uh, you would have the scope for competition here. Somebody set up and offer cheaper haircuts. Well, somebody did that. And they were gaining market share, big time, uh, opening a number of franchises. So the barber cartel got together and said, well, this is, this is terrible for us. We need to do something about it. But we can't actually say competition is bad. Uh, the public won't buy it. So what they decided was that it was unhygienic to have a haircut without having a shampoo beforehand. So they mandated that before every haircut, you had to have a shampoo. This was brilliant because by mandating a shampoo beforehand, you force the upstart to install expensive plumbing, uh, basins, uh, all the paraphernalia to give a shampoo. And immediately meant that they, they had to retrofit all their shops uh, that they had already, increased their costs. Now they were much less competitive than before. But this is an example to suggest that services, especially domestic-oriented services, but also a lot of domestic-oriented activity, construction, retail, transport, very inefficient in, in Japan. And it's the same force that created those large firms for the export sector that suppresses competition at the domestic sector and creates inefficiency. Problem here is there are many countries like Japan, um, uh, Germany, uh, increasingly some of the East Asian economies and potentially China. And these countries are extremely dependent on exports, especially in downturns. Uh, think about Japan. In the last 20 years, it has stimulus package after stimulus package. Japan is now covered with concrete. If there's a build, bridge to be built anywhere, it has been built. And there are now some bridges to nowhere. Uh, but it still hasn't come out of a slump. And that's the problem. These countries can't. They're dependent on exports to bring them out. And that's the second fault line, that the global economy is excessively dependent uh, because there are some surplus countries which are dependent on others to absorb their deficits. If you think about the countries that ran large deficits over the fi last five to ten years, Iceland, Latvia, Hungary, um, uh, Greece, Spain, Portugal, the United States, the United Kingdom. Sounds like a rogues gallery of countries that are in trouble now. And that's really the problem of global imbalances with these chronically structurally surplus countries sending exports, looking for countries willing to run large deficits. And the countries that are willing to run large deficits, like the United States that I've just talked about, are often countries that want to overspend because they have serious domestic concerns they want to deal with. In Greece, uh, the, uh, the government bought off people with public sector jobs and created a public sector debt crisis. In the United States, we bought them off with housing and have created a housing crisis. So uh, deficit spending is problematic. Let me end with the last fault line and then uh, talk quickly about what happened in the financial sector. Um, a third aspect in the United States. So I said the United States structurally was pushing consumption, but is also pushing it cyclically. That is, in downturns, it stimulates more. Why did that happen? 
I argue in the book that one change in the United States over the last uh, uh, 20 years has been the nature of recoveries. Used to be you went into a recession, came out very quickly. Eight months from the trough of the recession, the jobs that were lost were back. Um, In 1991, however, something changed. Uh, Even though growth came back in two or three quarters, jobs came back only after 23 months. And in 2001, it took 38 months for the jobs to come back. This recession, most people assume uh, the recovery started middle of last year. doesn't look like that for most people. Jobs will probably come back, uh, you know, will go back to 5% unemployment, if ever, by about 2014 or 2015. That's five or five years to recover the jobs. When you have jobless recoveries, the safety net that the United States has, six months, tends to be grossly inadequate. People uh, also lose medical benefits when they lose their jobs, and until the health care bill comes in, uh, that's going to be the case. People get very anxious, therefore, when they lose their jobs. Uh, right now, we have uh, underemployment and unemployment of 20%. When you have such a large part of the population that is anxious, the politicians hear it. The consequence is that the U.S. becomes the reliable stimulator of first resort. Uh, happens through fiscal stimulus. As you know, there's yet another job bill before the government. Jobs, jobs, jobs. That is the central focus on the, of the government today. And it's the focus of the Fed. The Fed won't raise interest rates until the jobs at least start coming back. Greenspan said as much. In fact, in 2002, he went further. In an attempt to get industry to create those jobs to invest, uh, he offered the famous Greenspan put. We really don't care about potential bubbles because we can't recognize them. But if, in fact, there is a downturn, uh, we will be there with plenty of liquidity to refloat the economy and send it back into another boom. So the Greenspan put, people sort of say this reflects the craziness of that era. But it was a very, um, uh, I would say, well-thought-out response to the fact that jobs weren't being created and weren't coming. The Fed was on hold not because activity wasn't uh, increasing, it was on hold because the jobs weren't coming back and uh, Greenspan couldn't raise interest rates. That, to my mind, is the third fault line, that because the U.S. doesn't have a safety net commensurate with the length of the recoveries that we have now, this tremendous pressure to do something, to do anything, to keep the jobs coming. And unfortunately, the policies, if they did produce the jobs, would be a good thing. They're not producing the jobs, but the policies are on hold. Interest rates were on hold between 2002 to 2004, and that created some of the environment for the kinds of activities that happened. So um, what does all this have to do with the crisis? Let me end quickly with that. Why were low-quality mortgage-backed securities created? I will talk about that. Why did the banks hold them? Uh, if you uh, get the book, I'd, I'd leave you to read that in the book. Um, the low-quality mortgage-backed securities is pretty obvious from what I've just said. There's a wall of money pouring into subprime lending to fulfill congressional mandates. There's a wall of money coming from outside, which was attempting uh, to buy U.S. assets as a counterpart for the trade surpluses they were running. A lot of German banks uh, tried to buy into this, this uh, into uh, safe securities. And financial innovation responded. It responded by bridging the gap between the people who wanted the securities and the assets that would be created in the US economy, especially housing. And together, they eliminated the checks and balances 
uh, on on uh, on the economy. Let let me explain uh, more a little more detail what I what I mean. Um, in the sophisticated arms length markets, uh, what is important is that prices guide behavior, because ultimately transactions are sliced and diced up that the person initiating the transaction doesn't see the final outcome. Okay? So it's very important that prices be appropriate because they guide behavior. So um, when uh, prices are right, the fact that you're making money typically signifies that you're both uh, you know, doing the right thing, but you're also adding value to society. You're doing God's work in blank fines terms. Um, but when the prices go off kilter, those same signals can push you a long way from doing the right thing. Okay? So think about the countrywide brokers or the first century brokers. Everybody castigates them. How could you put grandmothers into houses they couldn't afford? My sense is putting grandmothers into houses you can't afford is the stuff of newspapers, but wasn't the primary activity. A lot of what they were doing was putting people who were stretching uh, who had one or two incomes, which were shaky, uh, but relied a lot on house price appreciation to enable them to stay in the house. But why didn't the brokers understand that this was shaky, that there was, this would collapse? Why did they make these loans? And I want to argue that there were people at the end of that line who were willing to buy this stuff. This is the wall of money coming in which didn't ask enough questions, which were willing to accept the credit quality that people said these things were. And as a result, the person at the front of the line didn't ask too many questions either. Some of them were, you know, crooks. And in every profession, there are crooks. But to argue that the majority of them were crooks, I think, is perhaps overstating the case. They responded to incentives. And the incentives was create any garbage that somebody at the end of the line willing to buy it. Right? And, and therefore, I want to argue that it was a distortion created by this wall of money that we have to worry about. Bottom line, there's plenty of blame to spread. It's not just the financial sector. They are to blame for sure, and there are incentives in the financial sector we need to fix. It's not just the regulators. We need to finger the politicians. Uh, we need to finger the academics who didn't uh, recognize what was happening. Um, we need to finger the public that was too happy with the way things were going and thought that we had achieved a resolution to the problem of growing inequality. Um, finally, let me end with hard choices. Let me not focus on financial sector reform. You've heard a lot about that. Uh, my main shtick in the book is we need to get the prices right. We need to get banks uh, to face up to the costs of their risk-taking, which means things like bond prices should reflect that risk-taking. How to do it, I talk about in the book. But I also want to talk about deeper problems the United States faces. What do we do about the people falling behind? How do we make sure that we have a more sensible answer this time? We don't, we don't offer SOPs again which go haywire. Um, clearly, the answer is improve education. That is the long-run answer. Improve communities, families, so people can take advantage of that. That's going to take 15 to 20 years. What do we do in the meantime with the 47-year-old auto worker who's just lost his job uh, in GM and will never get a job in the auto sector again? And there are more and more of these people. Now, usually we throw out terms like retraining. But I think the experience with retraining is that it's never going to get you anywhere near the kind of job that you had before, especially if you're uh, in your 40s and your 50s, an age that I happen to be. Um, so 
I can't imagine being retrained. I don't know if you can imagine being retrained, but we need to deal with that problem. How we deal with that is going to be critical. It's going to create a lot more conflict in the economy than we have right now. Um, second, should we start rethinking our safety net? We've done a little bit of that with the healthcare bill. Should we rethink about it more? On the one hand, the thin safety net has been very important. Uh, because it's created the flexibility in the economy, in, in the labor market. It gives people the incentive to go out and look for work. And that's been a good thing because we have quick recessions. But if for structural reasons we don't fully understand recessions are much longer, uh, is it inhumane? Is it creating more problems because it creates the wrong kinds of policies uh, as politicians jump over each other to try and deal with the problems of, uh, of unemployment? Uh, I don't know. That's a debate we should start having. Uh, finally, should we be more circumspect about pushing consumption? I mean, what is the Fed and Congress doing today other than trying to get the household to consume more again so that somehow we come out of the recession and we'll worry about the problems of too little savings down the line? Uh, this is not the time to worry. Well, if this is not the time to worry, do you think that the households will start increasing their savings way down the line if you haven't uh, done it in, in bad times. Uh, I mean, these are the questions that we should debate more strongly. Uh, and finally, at the global level, how do we deal with surplus countries? This was a problem Keynes dealt with, didn't come up with a good answer. It's a problem I try and talk about in the book. I don't have a great answer, but I think I have a somewhat better answer than what's out there. It's not going to happen through exhortation or by putting these countries in the penalty box. They have no incentive to change because change is painful. And what we need to do is examine this problem more directly and think about how we can get countries like Germany, like Japan, like China to move off their current growth path to something that's more sustainable. Let me stop there. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Raghu. Our next speaker is John Hilsenrath, who is the chief economics correspondent uh, for the Wall Street Journal and is based here in Washington where he's responsible for covering the Federal Reserve. Mr. Hilsenrath has been a member of the Global Wall Street Journal team since 1997. He helped lead the coverage in the 1990s of the Asian financial crisis and then the tech boom and bust uh, preceding the 2001 U.S. recession and uh, he has since covered the recent uh, crisis in global debt markets. He has received numerous uh, awards in, in journalism, including excellence in business reporting from the Society of Publishers in Asia in the year 2000. Please help me welcome Mr. Hilsenrath. Thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor to be here to, uh, to talk about Raghu's work. I've... Uh, had many conversations with him before and uh, and after the crisis, and have always uh, found his his uh, insights very helpful in putting in perspective uh, what I'm writing about. So I, I wanted to talk about three things today. Uh, one is how the media handled uh, coverage of the economy and the financial system leading up to the crisis. To what extent do we deserve part of the blame? Uh, and the other two relate directly to uh, Raghu's work. One uh, relates to his, his uh, talk about income inequality and the role that it played in creating a fault line, and the other, uh, uh, the Fed. I cover the Fed, so that's an area where I think maybe I should chime in. To, to talk about the media on the first subject, I, what I thought I would do 
is go back to this Jackson Hole meeting uh, that Raghu was such a central figure at uh, to tell you the story a little bit more. Uh, so the, the Fed gathered gathers in Jackson Hole every August, and in 2005, Alan Greenspan was about to retire. And the theme of this meeting of central bankers and economists, uh, the most respected central bankers and economists from around the world, was the legacy of Alan Greenspan. Uh, Raghu's comments were to he effectively raised questions about whether the financial system, and in particular the Greenspan doctrine, the doctrine, the idea that financial innovation uh, and uh, the securitization that had come to dominate our financial system had made the system uh, safer. Uh, Raghu's theme was that it actually could be creating more risk. So what I thought I would do is go back and look at how the media covered that event. And uh, I've got to say, it wasn't, uh, we, we didn't cover ourselves in glory. Two, two, idea, two themes come out from uh, the stories that uh, I picked out from the coverage of the August 2005 meeting. And I should say, uh, the economists at that meeting were very critical of Raghu for challenging the Greenspan Doctrine at a meeting that was supposed to be, uh, that was meant to, to uh, praise Greenspan. Uh, maybe people thought it wasn't polite to get up and say, hey, wait a second, we have some problems building. So two themes came out. Uh, from the media coverage that came out of that meeting. The first one was that uh, the stories that generated, that were generated was that basically Alan Greenspan is great. Uh, how do we clone the guy? Uh, the other one was that there was actually a broad recognition at the time that we might indeed have a housing bubble. Uh, and interestingly, the guy warning about that was Greenspan himself, and the media largely took its cues uh, from Greenspan and not from the other guy in the room. So I just want to read you a few of the headlines, a few of the stories that came out. So here's uh, one from The Economist, uh, the, lead, the lead sentence. A collection of central bankers and economists distinguished even by the elevated standards of Jackson Hole paid tribute to Alan Greenspan's 18 years as chairman of the Federal Reserve. Uh, here's another one from my newspaper. Central bankers and scholars praised Alan Greenspan's grasp of the behavior of the U.S. economy. Uh, another one, uh, this one also from my paper, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan, five months from retirement, uh, with Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Greenspan, five months from retirement, the search for the secret of his success was to begin in earnest today at the annual Federal Reserve Conference at Jackson Hole. Uh, here's a column from somebody, I've learned to pay attention when Alan Greenspan speaks and then finally, uh, another one, has Alan Greenspan done his job too well? So you know, these are all the stories that came out of the Jackson Hole meeting. Obviously, the theme was this guy is amazing. There wasn't a lot of critical thinking uh, or skepticism about the full range of his ideas. Uh, as I said, the, the, the other uh, storyline that came out of it was that we might actually have a housing bubble, and this was an idea that Greenspan himself uh, spoke about at the Jackson Hole meetings. The problem was that there were two pieces uh, to the problem. We had, a, we, we had potentially a housing bubble, but we also had all these fault lines building up in the financial system. Uh, and the media uh, and the people in the room didn't, didn't connect the dots. 
Um, so, the, I mean, these are the two lessons that I take from, from Jackson Hole. One is that uh, we, we had in the media figured out by 2005 that there was a problem, but we only saw, we saw half of the problem, and we didn't pay enough attention uh, to the other guy in the room who was, expect, uh, who was uh, expecting, expressing skepticism about uh, the, the broader ways that the financial system was working. Uh, the complacency wasn't about bubbles. We all knew that there was a bubble building, or that there was the potential for a bubble. It was about a view that Greenspan himself had championed, uh, that Wall Street and innovation had made our financial system more stable. So, uh, you know, I have to put a qualifier in for this because the, the journal wasn't completely oblivious to these problems. We'd been writing for years about the problems at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and we'd started writing stories about the dangers uh, that were that were building up from the the flood of capital that was coming into the U.S. from abroad. Something that Raghu talked about a lot today. Uh, about, in fact, we had a, a series of stories that we started writing in late 2005 called "A Wash in Cash." Uh, but we should have been paying more attention to smart skeptics, and uh, so that's one of the lessons that I draw from the crisis. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about. Two themes that come out in uh, in Raghu's book. One is this idea of, uh, of of income inequality and what role did it play as a fault line in the crisis. Now, uh, Raghu focuses a lot on low income households. Uh, I would argue that government policy uh, was especially dangerous in its support not for low income households but for middle income households, uh, and that was potentially an even bigger source. Uh, of danger for the crisis and, and even bigger danger for the U.S. economy going forward. Uh, for a lot of the reasons that Raghu ha has laid out, the, you know, he, he put up this chart of the disparity in, uh, in incomes between the 90th percentile and the 50th percentile. You know, what we've seen is that the middle class has had a hard time keeping up. Uh, public education is falling short, and there's increased competition uh, from overseas. For the last 30 years, it's been concentrated in manufacturing, but increasingly we're seeing it in, in the service sector, too. So if you looked at what was going on with middle-class household balance sheets during the crisis, they were actually getting more stretched than low-income household balance sheets, uh, despite all the support that the government was uh, supposed to be orienting towards uh, low-income housing. So I just I pulled up a few facts and figures from the Federal Reserve Survey of Consumer Finances. I thought I'd reel them off for you. The, the ratio of debt payments to family income in uh, 2001 for the bottom, quartile, the bottom quintile of households, the, the 20th percentile of households, uh, was it actually fell from 2001 to 2007, from 19%, 19.2% of, uh, of income to 19 to 19%. So the debt payments that households made as a percentage of their total income. For the middle in, uh, for middle in class, middle income groups, it soared. For instance, for the fourth quintile, uh, the families that were in the 60% to 80% quintile uh, of household income, uh, the debt payments as a percentage of total income grew from 18 percent to 22 percent from 2001 to 2007. So in other words, you had these middle class uh, families as they were trying to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, 
piling on more and more debt. Leverage of families also showed the same pattern. Uh, the leverage in the lowest 20% of incomes was unchanged from 20, 2001 to 2007, around 13.5%. But leverage of families in that 60 to 80% range, so the folks that were just a little bit above median income levels, went from 18% to 25%. Uh, they were starting to behave the way Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns were behaving during, uh, during the boom years. And one of the biggest shifts in how people use debt from 2001 to 2007, how they used their borrowed money was to, to go out and buy second homes. So the percentage of borrowed money that went into second homes went from 6.5% in 2001 to almost 11% by, by, uh, 2000, uh, by 2007. So, you know, I see this as a, as a potentially intractable problem because Nothing's really changed on this front. The government now controls Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, there's no signs uh, that they're anywhere near coming up with a solution. Uh, and the government has pretty much become the lender to middle-class uh, mortgage borrowers. Uh, there's no talk about changing the mortgage tax credit. And, of course, we have a huge uh, deficit problem, a long-run deficit problem, uh, revolving around entitlement spending, Medicare and Social Security. And that's going to require uh, forcing uh, change on middle-class households if it's going to be addressed. And, you know, there's, there's reason to be skeptical about whether that's going to happen. So I'd like to hear what Raghu has to say about that. He focuses a lot on low-income households in his book. And I think these, uh, these, the, the middle-class problem is especially especially difficult. So the, the last thing I wanted to talk about without dragging on too long is uh, the role of the Fed. So the Fed has taken uh, a lot of the blame and a lot of criticism for its role in the crisis. The argument is that the Fed kept interest rates, short-term interest rates, I should say. The Fed controls overnight borrowing rates, and the longer-term longer interest rates are kind of set by the market, but the Fed has an influence on it. So the argument is that the Fed kept rates too low for too long. They cut them all the way to, uh, to 1 percent in 2000, uh, I should remember this, 2003, and uh, kept them low for a very long time. And the idea is that these low rates help to, help to feed the bubble. Uh, well, yeah, I think there's, there's – there still has to be some debate about what role the Fed's interest rate policy played in causing the, the housing bubble. Now, as I said a minute ago, I mean, I think the, the argument that everyone bought into the Greenspan doctrine, the idea that all this financial innovation was good and made the system safer uh, and we didn't need to regulate it, I, I, I think that's a, that's a very fair point. But on the question of whether the Fed kept rates too low for too long, again, wanted to throw out some numbers. Uh, the, the worst vintage mortgages that were written uh, leading up to this crisis were being written in 2006 and 2007. And by 2006, the Fed had already raised short-term rates back up above 5%. Uh, and also by 2006, high unemployment wasn't really a problem anymore. The, uh, the unemployment rate was back under 5%. So you know, one, one could question whether it was the Fed's interest rate policies that were the primary driver here. Raghu has talked a lot 
about uh, the, the global imbalances. There was this flood of money from surplus countries, from Asia, uh, from the oil-producing nations that was, that was pouring into the United States in particular. And that was helping to keep long-term interest rates low. I think one could argue that that was uh, an even bigger problem than, uh, than the Fed's mistake. Now, I don't want to excuse the Fed here because uh, they, they certainly dropped the ball on overseeing big banks like, uh, like Citigroup. Uh, they certainly bred, I would say, a sense of complacency about the need for regulating uh, Wall Street. But uh, the, the argument that they're, that they kept rates too low for too long, I think is an unsettled question. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure to, to uh, introduce Dr. Carmen Reinhart, who is currently a professor of economics at the University of Maryland, where she has been since 1996. She's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and she's on the editorial boards of the American Economic Review and the Journal of International Economics. In 1985, she served as the chief economist and vice president of the investment bank Bear Stearns. And uh, significantly, she is the co-author, along with Ken Rogoff, another former chief economist of the IMF, of the uh, timely and masterful uh, book, This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly. There are very few other experts in the world who know as much as she does about the history of financial crises, so we're very uh, happy to welcome her. Well, um, it's really a pleasure to be here and uh, get to comment on fault lines, uh, which I enjoyed very much. I don't know if enjoyed is the right term, but it made me think a lot. Uh, and what I'd like to do in my remarks is divide them up into three parts. Uh, the first part, I'd like to put fault lines in the broader context of a lot of what's been written uh, about financial crises, and there's been a lot written about financial crises in the last couple of years. The second part, uh, I am going to restate uh, what the three fault lines are. There's a lot in the book that it's over and beyond the fault lines, but I'd like to restate those three. Uh, and I'd like to emphasize uh, what I see uh, as missing um, and let me say, what you will get mostly, about 90% of what I will say will be in agreement with what's in this book. Um, but, but there is an element that is missing that I'd like to highlight. And the third part, I'd like to talk about prospects. Uh, Raghu uh, touched on that at the end. And in Fault Lines, there's an epilogue uh, in which he talks also about some rebalancing in the role of government and such. And I'd like to put in my three cents worth uh, on that, noting what an uplifting, positive person I am. Um, as she'll become manifest shortly. Um, let me start putting the book in, in context uh, on the literature. Um, you, let me start with one of my favorite cartoon characters was Woody Woodpecker. And he went to a banquet, and he ate and ate 
and ate. And at the last minute, he had an olive, and then he burst. Uh, the reason I mention this is there's a lot of books out there that are about the olive. This is not one of them. Um, so I really think this is a, a serious book about the causes of crises. A lot of what is written is about that 11th hour, whether something was... I'm not saying that's not important, but those things are amplifiers, whether the Lehman situation was mishandled, uh, what some of the uh, decisions on TARP were. I mean, I'm not saying all of that is not important, but those things are amplifiers. They come at the end. The roots of crises are sown early. And this is a book not about the olive, but about the feast that went on in the run-up to the olive. Um, and and I, I, I like that very much because I get very annoyed when I read, well, if we hadn't done Lehman this way, the crisis would have never happened. We would, of course, had a crisis anyway, in my view anyway. So, so um, what um, I'd like to spend most of my time on, though, is the restating of the main three fault lines uh, and taking each one of those in turns. Okay, the first fault line is basically we save a little, we borrow too much. Uh, we, the United States. And I certainly argue, I, 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 I cannot possibly agree more with that as a critical cause of not just this crisis, but almost any crisis that I've looked at. Large capital inflows. Let, let me just, I, 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 at the risk of being obnoxious, let me define what a current account deficit really is. It is saving minus investment. So you get a current account deficit when you save too little or invest too much. And uh, by any measure, we save too little. Uh, and we borrow from the rest of the world, and we continue to do that. I will go back to that issue when I talk about prospects. So the, the first uh, fault line is that we, the U.S., in this crisis, save too little. Um, the second fault line is China saves too much uh, in its export-oriented uh, uh, framework. Uh, the uh, main thrust of policy is to have current account surpluses to lend to the rest of the world. Uh, and this is a model that has been very prevalent in Asia uh, before China. I will talk about that more. Japan, as, as Raghu mentions in both the book and his presentation, and Korea and Indonesia and Thailand and others have. The third fault line, which I find very intriguing, and here I, I, I uh, part with John about um, um, the, it's not about blaming the Fed. I think the point of the third fault line is more general than that is, do we have a built-in propensity now to overease? Uh, and because we may be doing that again right now. Uh, so this is not about backward finger pointing so much is about the fact that we have now this jobless recovery uh, framework which makes it very difficult for any central banker to raise interest rates uh, that we have a built-in propensity to, to ease. I mean, those are I think the three fault lines and I will I haven't misstated them. Okay. Now let me take the, the first one. 
we save too little. Okay, I capital inflows end badly. Uh, this is no exception. I, however, don't think income inequality can do the trick in explaining why we save too little. And credit policies, and here I'm full agreement with what John says, the boom in credit in the United States was much more generalized than a boom in low-income housing. Okay, and, and, and it, importantly, and this is, this is interesting because Raghu's earlier work also emphasized the tricks of financial innovation and creative financing as a source of risk. One of the common threads in these booms in lending comes from financial innovation and financial liberalization. Okay? The, there are five pretty bad post war crises uh, before this massive crisis of, of subprime and its aftermath. Japan in 92, Germany, uh, I mean uh, Spain in 77, and the three Nordic countries. Norway in 87, Sweden in 91, and Finland in 91. Let me say, let me reiterate, the three Nordic countries, they have the most equal income distribution in the world, or roughly so. Um, I'm just overemphasizing this because I think that the issue you want to get at is the issue of the credit boom. Let them eat credit is, is a pretty powerful statement. And I think this, this did went, did, I'm not denying for a moment that that did not contribute importantly to the credit bubble, but it was much more general. Uh, and the fact is, UK, as, and, and, and Ragu listed them all, UK, Spain, Ireland, I can go down, not to mention Iceland, which is, of course, a gem onto its own, um, all had massive, massive borrowing, uh, domestic credit, um, surges, foreign borrowing surges in Iceland, external debt as a percent of GDP hits 1,000 percent, 1,000, okay? Uh, and, and, and I think... This is relevant to my, la my last set of comments, which is part of what the rebalancing I would like to see in policy, and, and I'll come to this later, is more emphasis. I mean, we've been obsessed with short-term interest rates since the wherewithal of monetary policy. But from a financial stability standpoint, I think focus on what is happening to credit is very, very warranted here. And, and so, I, I, but I will come back to that later. The second fault line, um, the model of export-led growth is critical in driving a country like China to have these surpluses. I buy that. But if China liberalized its financial sector and if, it's if it liberalized its capital account, like Thailand, like Korea, like Indonesia. By the way, all of them had massive crises on the aftermath of liberalization. And again, I'm, it, this, my second point is no different from the first one. We got it in the causes of these crises, uh, both, you know, the, 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 in the, both in terms of the root origin and in the amplifier 
financial innovation, liberalization, trickery, whatever you want to call it, is is a critical element. And I, you know, I, I that is my main criticism of your book. Okay, that, and and you, it's it's funny because you've actually emphasized that more in some of your other work. All right, now, the third fault line, um, I I buy lock, stock, and barrel, and I just want to reiterate it because I really think it's a danger. Uh, that because we focus on uh, short-term interest rates, because we have an inflation objective and an employment objective which don't say a lot about the liquidity that we're creating, um, this can happen again. In, you know, right now, and this is, I, the, I'm going to, um, by the way, let me just go back to the first fault line. I, 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 I'm a little, I, for, I meant to mention this, but I, I really do think that changing the incentives and is, is, is critical, that our incentives to borrow a lot for housing and and not save enough are, are problematic, and they're going to continue to be pro- problematic. I, re- I I have to say this. I recently uh, testifying uh, uh, before Congress on the issue of fiscal austerity and, and needs to curb the deficit. Mentioned well, we you know nothing should be sacred here. We have to put things in like uh, you know we have to reconsider tax credits uh, and and the like. And the look was like, she said a bad word. She said a bad word. You know, and so uh, the, 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 the issue isn't fixed. And I think the incentive problem uh, remains there. I forgot to really mention that. Um, but getting back to uh, the, the third po- fault line, and this brings me to my concluding remarks on, on prospects. Um, right now, uh, Ragun does have a section that I, I, I know this is a sheep shot, but I, I'm going to say it. It is, it is reducing the need for, for tail, uh, reducing, what is it, the chase, uh, the tail, tail end risk? I, I, I can't, good luck if you think that's going to happen. I, I, right now, the tail end risk are emerging markets, and that excess liquidity is flooding there. Um, uh, but, um, it is part of this bias that we have, uh, and I think I, I had not I had not thought about it. So this book really made me think very hard about that. The two the first two fault lines were no surprise. The third one was to me. So I I really really uh, think that 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 added a new understanding to me to to what's going on right now with all this liquidity sloshing around. Um, on the prospects. Um, I think there will be some rebalancing. Raghu didn't stress about it uh, in his presentation as much as he does in the book, the issue that it's part of rebalancing the government objective as well, the, the, the role of government. And in, the, in China, that would mean rebalancing from an obsession with export-led growth. In the United States, it would be uh, rebalancing in terms of changing incentives uh, toward saving, uh, and and 
And I, I, I have to say that I'm not really optimistic uh, at this conjuncture um, uh, that that rebalancing in models is taking place. Um, I would like to say, though, and this is relevant to my earlier remarks about emphasizing financial liberalization and financial innovation, I do think, in the end, this crisis, at least for a while, because, and we're seeing this, we have, what, what 1,972 pages of financial regulation floating around? Um, I think for the time being, uh, the rebalancing that's going on, it's towards a, more, a heavier re-regulation of the financial industry. Um, now, this re-regulation of the financial industry, I think when all is said and done, um, is going to mean a return to uh, financial repression uh, in the advanced economies as well as uh, more generally. Um, what do I mean by financial repression? Does anyone in the room have you heard the, the term financial repression? Well, financial repression was what we had in the 50s and 60s in which we had more regulated international controls on capital movements. We had more directed credit. Uh, we had more caps on interest rates and non-marketable kinds of debt. And why do I say that that, I think, is going to be sort of the lingering legacy of, of this uh, crisis? Because the advanced economies haven't yet come to terms with the fact that they're mired in debt, government debt. And this is not, we're seeing the, the European situation. Europe is mired in debt. We're mired in debt. Japan is mired in debt. And financial repression, finding creative ways to place government debt at low interest rates is a very tempting solution uh, to the current conjuncture. So not in the good way that we hope for, or Raghu highlights in the book, some of the, because he gives concrete ways in which the government may rebalance some of these existing um, fault lines, these existing imbalances. Uh, but in a somewhat shadier way, uh, I think some, through, fi through financial repression, I think um, uh, we will see some of these imbalances diminish. I conclude with the following. I cannot help but think that it is ironic that a crisis that began in the U.S. has, and it's, 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 it's now manifesting in Europe, has actually prolonged the life of the dollar as a reserve currency. I mean, very few times do you see people running into a burning building. Uh, and and, and if, if you look... It, and I, the reason I bring this up is not a gratuitous comment, but it is, I think, prolonged the fact that the euro, which was the main contender of the dollar as, as a competitor, reserve currency, its demise has actually given U.S. policymakers more time to 
not move in the correction of directing the global imbalances that Raghu has been stressing uh, for a number of years now. So with that note, uh, I will thank Thanks very much uh, for those comments. I think the proper metaphor is not a burning building, but uh, that of campers who, uh, whose goal is not to outrun the bear, but to outrun the other campers. And so uh, we'll give Gregu a couple of minutes to respond, and then we'll take some, some other questions. Um, uh, thanks for those great comments uh, from, uh, from both the uh, commentators. Um, just some clarifying remarks. Uh, I mean, I agree with John that... Uh, um, you know, if you think about housing, 65% uh, approximately of uh, U.S. households own housing. So once you're saying that most of the remaining 35 are low income, you're already well into the middle class. So I agree with his, uh, with his point that, that some of this debt was, was, uh, was primarily middle class debt. And after all, uh, that's the vote that politicians care about. Uh, in, in some ways, the, the really low income people um, uh, are not as much as a political voice or force. And so I agree that that's, that's where the action was. And, you know, subprime doesn't necessarily mean low income. Uh, it can mean people stretching in California uh, to buy the houses. So, so again, I would support uh, what he said. I would depart a little on federal, Fed interest rate policy. I, I mean, I think the, the whole point of uh, 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 it's difficult to look at, I mean, I agree completely with him that the debate is not conclusive. Uh, but I would say that if looking at the temporal, uh, which is a point that Bernanke is also making, that looking at when the prices really took off and when the bad loans were made and saying that we were raising interest rates then, uh, my colleague at Chicago, Randy Krosner, who was at the Fed at that time, makes the same point, I, I think uh, may not be uh, a full and complete explanation in the sense that there is always momentum to asset price booms. The mo momentum was set... Uh, earlier on, and that eventually took a life of its own. Uh, and the way the short-term interest rate worked, other than uh, uh, you know perhaps giving some effect on the long-term interest rate, which is typically how the Fed expects it to work, is it helped variable rate mortgages, a point that Jeremy Stein made in a discussion of Alan Greenspan's uh, commentary some time back. So uh, I agree, the jury is still out. Uh, um, finally, um, I, I'm not... Uh, I'm not arguing uh, that this was only a housing boom, uh, and that's why I use multiple fault lines. I think this was much more complicated than a housing boom, and so uh, I agree with Carmen when she says it was a more general problem, and that's where some of the other fault lines kick in. But I want to say that, it, in a sense, the, the epicenter was in, uh, in the subprime housing area, and I would say that government policy there uh, was, was important. More generally, I, I want to argue that, uh, yes, there are some crises without uh, political roots, uh, but many crises have political roots where you're trying to buy off. I mean, why excess government spending? Uh, often you're trying to buy off key constituencies. Uh, in Greece, for example, uh, government jobs expand because you're trying to give, uh, give jobs to the boys. Uh, eventually that comes back to rebound in Latin American policies, which Carmen knows much more about, many of them populist in an attempt to buy votes, and those create problems. Uh, finally, on innovation, whether innovation was a problem or a response, uh, I think we can debate that for a long time. So uh, I won't try and debate that here. Uh, my sense is it was, yeah, it was certainly part of the problem. 
but I would also say it was a response to the enormous demand for fixed-rate debt. Uh, uh, you couldn't directly give the mortgage to the guys who wanted the fixed-rate debt. They were often foreign institutions. Uh, the securitization process was a way Wall Street thought of cleverly of marrying the two. Uh, was it response? Was it cause? I think a bit of both. We have time for some questions now. Uh, if you have a question, raise your hand and wait for the microphone to, to come to you and then identify yourself and your affiliation, please. We'll take a question in the front. Right there. Uh, my name is Arnold Kling. I'm an adjunct scholar with Cato. Um, first, a, a couple couple comments, uh, Raghu. I think you, it, it's a bit of a swindle to suggest that the political economy of housing subsidies in America comes from an attempt to deal with the middle of the income distribution. I think it, it it's just much more straightforward than that. There's just a very powerful housing lobby of realtors and mortgage lenders and so on. I, I, I don't think it's as, it's as subtle as trying to play to the middle class. Um, I also think it's a bit of a swindle to talk about export-led growth in terms of having export industries that are strong. Because you, you can have very large export industries because you have a small country uh, you know, for those reasons, but you don't need to run a, a, a current account surplus. I mean, you know, like, like something like Israel, I could argue, has export-led growth, but they're not known as a current account surplus country. Um, but for a question... It seems like your view of the world is that short-term policies to reduce unemployment through aggregate demand, either through fiscal stimulus or, or monetary stimulus, aggravate the imbalances. And moreover, don't do much about the unemployment because, you may, because the unemployment seems to be increasingly structural. First of all, is, is, that, if that, is that a fair characterization? And if it is... Uh, what tools do you have to offer policymakers as alternatives uh, to deal with what you th with deal with unemployment in ways that you think would be more constructive? Okay. Um, first, I won't use the word swindle. I think the language and discourse is deteriorating nowadays, and <laughs> it looks a lot like. Uh, um, I mean, uh, especially on the blogosphere, I think that that that. Uh, just creates uh, an awful atmosphere of discussion. Uh, I, I have a proposition which you disagree with, and, uh, and we should just agree to disagree uh, rather than uh, call each other names on that. Um, on housing subsidies, I, I wasn't arguing that the broader mortgage interest reduction was driven by middle class, uh, uh, by, by uh, um, uh, efforts to subsidize the uh, lower income segments. Uh, it's more the whole change in the nature of intervention in housing markets over the 90s and the 2000s, uh, the affordable housing mandate uh, and uh, the, uh, the attempts to increase the requirements on Fannie and Freddie, uh, which was substantial and steady over the 1990s. I'm less uh, worried about what happened with CRA. There are some people who argue that the Community Reinvestment Act 
Act was enforced uh, more vigorously, I don't think that was a big deal. I think Fannie and Freddie was imp were important. I would say Fed the Federal Housing Administration and its more relaxed standards on lending were also an important tool. Uh, but it's not the mortgage interest reduction that I'm, I'm, I'm worried about. And I agree with you that, that uh, that's probably a much bigger uh, issue. And, and of course, the real estate lobby is very strong. We've seen that with the first-time home buyer credit and its extension. Um, on the uh, export-led growth, for sure, uh, there are countries that, uh, uh, that uh, are very good exporters, small countries. Singapore, for example, Israel, you pointed out. Uh, I, was, uh, I, I don't sort of emphasize just the export-led. It's also the anti-household producer-biased uh, strategy that a number of these countries have followed. For example, in China today, uh, households have paid a pittance on interest income. Uh, deposit interest rates are really low. That by itself has accounted for a significant fall in household income over the last uh, um, you know, four or five years. Uh, China's problem is not that its households save too much, but they get too little of a share of uh, 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 China's income. And that is why perhaps one of the answers uh, to the rebalancing of China is uh, the increasing uh, sort of income going to households through things like the worker movements that we see now. And so I think greater incomes towards the households, less subsidies to the exporters through the undervalued exchange rate, but also through, you know, uh, low energy, low-cost energy inputs, low-cost credit, those things will help uh, rebalance China. So I would say there are exporting countries that, uh, you know, don't necessarily need to be generating large surpluses. I agree with you there. But there are also countries that have suppressed domestic demand and are therefore structurally uh, in a position to exp uh, generate surpluses, uh, and I think that's, that's right. On the last issue, uh, the truth is I don't know. Uh, I don't know why we have these jobless recoveries. Uh, I have some theories in the book. Uh, I don't know why corporations are hesitant to invest. Now, it may be that we're looking at this. I mean, the recession is because they overinvested in the past. Uh, though, you know, before this recession, they didn't invest that much. 2001, they invested considerable amounts. So I would say that, uh, that uh, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's it, I, I, I think we first need to understand why. I do feel that, that fiscal and monetary stimulus, there are certain kinds of fiscal stimulus which I think are just humane, extending unemployment benefits. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of debate about whether that perpetuates unemployment. But I think you can't let people on the street in a civilized economy for prolonged periods of time. But on the uh, monetary stimulus, uh, I'm not sure it's helping that much. But I, you know, before offering a, I would say there are things that one might want to do, uh, such as improve, uh, you know, long-term capabilities of the economy. But short-term, I don't have a ready answer. But I think that's part of the problem, that we don't know what the answer is, so we're going to try everything in order. And what I suggest in the book is, till we don't have an answer, let's think about maybe whether we should have automatic extensions of unemployment benefits so that we don't have to try anything. Uh, I'd like to just add on, very briefly, on the issue of export-led growth. Uh, what distinguishes China, importantly, from the other countries that have had an export-led growth strategy is capital controls. Uh, and, and that we can't lose sight of that. Uh, all the countries I mentioned, Thailand, Indonesia, Korea, all have had export-led strategies. Uh, but the liberalization of capital mobility 
actually enabled these countries to borrow from the rest of the world. That borrowing, of course, ended poorly, like ours. Uh, but but export-led growth is 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 not the critical. I think my emphasis has been on the issue of financial liberalization or lack thereof, and that includes capital account. Question right right there, second row. Janine Waddell, uh, uh, School of Public Policy, George Mason University, and Senior Research Fellow at New America Foundation. Um, my question might seem like it's about the past, but it's really about how we view experts who are the experts in the media and, and the people as well. Um, first question to Mr. Hilzenroth and also Professor Rajan. Um, who... At, at the night at the 2005 Jackson Hole meeting, were there any media that got it right, and who were they? Perhaps they're people who are following things that that we should be listening to today. And along those same lines, for Professor Rajan, um, are there are there any lessons that are being learned by the economics profession? Um, through the events of the of the past several years, could you, for example, get a job in a leading economics school if you wanted to? Thank you. So, uh, so on on who got it right? I mean, this is one of the reasons I read all those uh, leads to to stories. Um, almost nobody uh, who covered that meeting even mentioned Raghu's paper. There was one publication that, well, there are actually two. So The Economist magazine mentioned Raghu's paper in the 12th paragraph of a 14-paragraph story. Uh, a newswire service mentioned the paper, but only in passing as part of a bigger story about Don Cohn's uh, objections to the paper. Don Cohn was the uh, at the time, he was both vice chairman of uh, of the Fed. So, you know, as I said before, the media got it half right. We all smell the housing bubble, but we what we didn't get was the vulnerabilities in the financial system. You know, I like to think that the journal uh, was picking up on some of that. We had started doing a series of stories that started in 2005 and ran all the way up until the crisis about the impacts of these massive cash flows that were uh, coming into the U.S. from abroad and the distortions that it was causing uh, in, uh, in the financial system. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say – I think we did a pretty good job, but I'm not – so you should read us. Uh, but I'm not going to say that we were you know, completely bathed in glory on it. Um, um, look um – I, I, I think that uh, the economics profession certainly has learned something uh, from what happened. Increasingly, you see macro models with the financial sector embedded. You know, Chairman Bernanke did some of his work on that. People are doing more of that. Uh, and the way I like to put it is we ignored the plumbing, and the plumbing backed up. Uh, and we thought we could assume away the plumbing. It turned out we couldn't. And, in fact, there's a famous uh, critique by Bob Lucas, when you assume away the underpinnings, uh, you you basically uh, you know have the process rebound on you. That was his famous critique on Keynesianism. You assumed the effects of policy 
uh, would continue as before. And in fact, when people understood what you were trying to do, they would react and things would change. Well, this time macroeconomists thought they could ignore the underlying financial plumbing, and I think we've, uh, we've learned that's wrong. Now, has that lesson been fully uh, imbibed? I don't think so. I think we're still uh, running policy on the basis that uh, we don't need to worry about the, uh, about the underpinnings. And, um, um, you know, for example, right now uh, there is a sense that interest rates should be strongly negative in real terms because we haven't dealt with the high levels of unemployment. There's enormous capacity. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying that's where they should be. But don't highly negative real interest rates have effects other than propelling economic activity? For example, aren't households going to start being forced to take more risk? Uh, and I don't know how many of you still have a lot of your money in money market accounts, but the general trend is take it out, put it anywhere, which gives you a little more yield. And if this is happening to people, everybody in this room, shouldn't we be starting to think about the consequences of that kind of activity? And, and that's where I, I, I think, let, let me add one last sentence. I don't think the problem is uh, when you ask, would I get a job in a, uh, well, if they thought I was good, they would. I have, uh, I, I don't think that would be a serious it wouldn't be my political leanings that would be a problem or my economics. Uh, it would be whether they thought I was good enough. That's a different uh, uh, question. But I do think that a problem with economists in general is that because we don't want to be associated with the commercial economist, the guy who works for an investment bank and makes predictions about what next quarter's GDP growth will be, uh, many of us shy away from public discourse. Uh, the problem is too few of us do. And unfortunately, and I apologize to the first uh, questioner for uh, uh, retorting a little harshly, because you see the dialogue amongst economists in public is of the kind, uh, you know, you're a charlatan. You're doing this because you're grandstanding. Uh, you're doing this because you want to inflict pain. Inflicting pain is a symbol of, uh, of honesty. Instead of talking about the issues, I disagree with you on this coefficient. I disagree on you about whether this is right. Let's talk about the subject about, without imputing motives to each other. And that, to my mind, uh, not only do we discourse, not discourse enough, when we actually engage in discourse, we start shouting at each other. That, to my mind, is a problem. Okay, I'm afraid we're running out of time, so what I would like to do is just take two last questions at the same time and then have uh, one answer. Uh, first question there, and the second question in the front row right there. So we'll take the first question first. McKinsey, uh, I'd like to ask about the hand-wringing over a jobless recovery. The phrase jobless recovery has an immediate implication, and that is that productivity is growing rapidly. So my inference is then the U.S. economy is actually restructuring more rapidly than the other advanced economies, and it's restructuring to make up for the misallocation of resources earlier. So my question is, which would you rather have, a jobless recovery or a recovery without productivity improvement? Let's take that question. Economist, that type. And um, I want to thank you so much. I think you brought up a lot of issues that um, I had not seen um, or heard addressed in the past, and I've gone to a number of these debates, also for Professor Reinhardt on her last comment. Could you and, just speak um, up just a little bit, please? Okay. And um, if you could, Professor, expand on your last comment regarding 
weather. I think to a certain extent, um, I feel that perhaps the entire global crisis was engineered. And um, assuming that it was, and we see the impact right now, even in Europe and our ability to manage a currency, et cetera, um, do you believe that um, we are able, the U.S. is now in a better competitive position to compete with the, 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 the large emerging giants such as China and India and Brazil, et cetera, and um, also, what would Professor Rajan say if, assuming that it was engineered to policymakers in terms of stretching the rubber band in, when one is looking at the, the debt variable and that it was over leveraged and then it was also passed down right down to, you know, middle class corporations, et cetera, who were also um, over leveraged on the, you know, the debt, the debt, in the debt variable as they reset the economy and I think they, are, they have continued to over-leverage debt because it seems as if that's the only way we know to finance futures. Um, um, on the first question, uh, you know, uh, isn't industry doing something good? I mean, that's, that's, that's the reason why uh, I'm not sure there's a huge room for policy there. Uh, uh, maybe we don't want to encourage investment too much. They're trying to deal with past investment. They're trying to restructure in a way. And restructuring does take time. Uh, I think one of the most damaging Keynesian uh, statements is in the long run, we're dead, uh, which implies immense short-term effort. And maybe you want to let it have some room. But that said, I would say there is a public policy issue if you expect unemployment to stay high over four or five years because what are those people who lost jobs going to do? And uh, especially when they have low savings and probably have a house which is dragging them into the mud. Uh, we need to think about that. That, that creates enormous uh, social difficulty. And as a civilized nation, you can't sit back and watch. Uh, so I, I think that's, that's, that's important. But I would in agree with you entirely. Let's not get into a huge dizzy. And every time try to crank up the machine, maybe, maybe industry needs time. Uh, and, and maybe let's think about that in more detail. That's why I don't have strong answers to what takes the place of fiscal and monetary stimulus. Uh, and I would rather it be focused on just helping those who are unemployed. On the um, issue of uh, competitiveness, let me take that. I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't argue this whole thing was engineered. Uh, I would say, it, you know, countries follow the path of least resistance. And in that, eventually ended up in the situation. It, I, I, I don't want to claim it's a grand conspiracy, even uh, by the politicians. Uh, I think they just followed what was convenient. Um, I would say that uh, there are many parts of the U.S. economy, coming back to the earlier question, which are extremely competitive and which have grown even more competitive by doing the right amount of re restructuring. So to my mind, the issue is not whether the U.S. will continue to play a role. It will play an enormous role in the growth of India and China. Uh, because it will have the high ground in terms of industries. Uh, one of the things that may be surprised some of you is the U.S. is the biggest provider of outsourcing services in the world, legal services, consulting services, financial services. The big issue to me is that that's the upper segment of the population which is getting that. The lower segment is not, uh, is benefiting only uh, you know, at second hand uh, from the demand created by the upper segment. How do we qualify the lower segment, which, which is the middle class that John is talking about, to be more comparative, to be able to afford college, 
and, and I think technology will play some role in here. I was just talking this morning with a, an entrepreneur who was saying uh, he was funding an enterprise which would allow you to take the first set of credits for college online at one-fifteenth the cost of college courses so that you'd take the more advanced courses once you got into college. Uh, and you do spend only a year or two, significantly reducing the costs of college. We'll have more innovations like that, which will bring college to more people. More of them have to be made capable. And that, to my mind, is America's big challenge, not whether there'll be industries. America will find a way. It's innovative enough. It will find a way. Um, on the question of whether the crisis was engineered, I don't think so. Uh, I think engineering a crisis requires have it, being attuned to what is happening. And I think that uh, uh, I, I am not capable of being able to give that much credit. Uh, in effect, part of the problem was a great complacency that these kinds of things happen in emerging markets. They don't happen to us. Um, I think the, the, demi the, the demise of Europe cannot be good for the United States. It's extended the life of the, of the dollar as a reserve currency. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's important to recognize it's made us more like Japan. Japan is the only country up to this point that during a financial crisis of major proportions and an extended number of years has had their currency appreciating. That's been what's happened to us. Normally, a currency depreciation, unwelcome as it may be in the short run, is what helps you get competitiveness and, and pull you out of, of, of the crisis. And um, uh, we're not – I'm not abstracting or, or, or giving less credit to the kinds of, of innovations and restructurings that have been mentioned here. But on the whole, the, 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 the appreciation of the dollar, on the whole – uh, is is not certainly helping our, our, our competitive position. With that, uh, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today, and please help me thanking our excellent speakers. Thank you very much.